You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The cabinet relationships with the president are very malleable and they're very flexible, which means that they change with each administration. The president can really manage and sort of, you know, have a strong grasp on the cabinet or can really be managed by the cabinet. When Washington met Cornwallis after his surrender at Yorktown, the general had a compliment for his opponent. Your victory here, he said to Washington, is impressive, but your reputation will really come from what you did on the Delaware. He was referring, of course, to the Battle of Trenton, day after Christmas in 1776, in which saved a war, saved a cause, saved an army. The situation in December 1776 was dire, having attempted a defense of New York and been beaten back, fleeing across New Jersey, over to the Pennsylvania side, then taking advantage of Cornwallis's refusal to pounce on him, he attacked a group of Hessians in a battle that we well know, the Battle of Trenton, took prisoners. That's pretty well known in history. What's less known is that once Trenton was taken, Washington had to hold it, and that was not an easy task. So there are really two battles of Trenton, or whereas a, a Revolutionary War scholars might refer to the second one a few days later of the Battle of Essenpink Creek, because Washington knew that he could not just simply occupy the same buildings in Trenton that he had just attacked from the heights and defend it. So he had his troops move to a very narrow point, the Assunpink Creek, where the British would have to cross to attack. He sends up one of his generals with a small force to delay Cornwallis, who is moving downward on the city of Trenton, to not only retake it, but to destroy Washington's army and hopefully destroy the revolutionary cause. Cornwallis is also quite mad because he was about to go back to Great Britain on a ship, when he heard about the Battle of Trenton and had to get back. And the American army were able to hold off a superior British force for the afternoon going into dusk. Washington does something that he would do quite often. He has a meeting of his officers. Here's how Lindsay Trevinsky, author of The Cabinet, who we're going to talk to today, describes it. Washington met the officers at General Arthur St. Clair's quarters, a modest two-and-a-half-story clapboard structure known as the Douglas House. It sat on the outskirts of Trenton, just next to the Army's camp. It was smaller than the Council's usual settings, but Washington had yet to establish new headquarters in New Jersey. On the night of January 2nd, Washington hastily gathered his officers. Just after dark, the officers stuffed into the living room on the first floor of the Douglas House. 
and crowded around the small fireplace. But more than that, aides were invited, and local citizens Washington's had selected out who might have an opinion and know the territory. They had to take out the chairs and most of the furniture in the house for all the people that would attend. Washington thinks they got two options here. They can attempt a retreat over the Delaware River in the middle of the night in freezing temperatures and high winds. So they had come across the Delaware to attack at Trenton, and now let's see if we can pull this off again and retreat back and get back to Pennsylvania, using the river then as a defense. He didn't like that idea. It might be an obvious ploy given that's what they did a few days earlier. Plus the winds had picked up, and if they were trying to cross the river, With the British aware, sharpshooters could pick them off, and artillery could bombard their boats. They didn't have the surprise element that they had on Christmas. Or they could attack directly. That seemed foolhardy. Cornwallis was in a defensive position and lined up with artillery. He'd either suffer a lot of casualties, it'd be demoralizing. Washington's always thinking about the cause. He's always thinking about the talk in the colonies and the potential new recruits that could come from a victory like Trenton or the lack of recruits that could come from a devastating defeat. If it was a huge loss, Washington might even have to surrender. That would be the end. It's Arthur St. Clair who suggests another alternative. His army or his units in the army were holding the right flank of the British in check. His men patrolled around. They discovered that the army could actually escape Trenton and go to Princeton if they swung in a southeastward direction and moved around where the British were and did not engage them. Other officers and local citizens confirm this. There's no British on these country lanes. Some locals offer that they will forget the roads. We'll take the army through our farmland. It's this consensus that causes Washington to agree with this plan that he had not conceived of. During the night, the Americans build fires, campfires, to make it seem like they're ready and working and it's a full camp. They have a few soldiers digging and building and making a show of building fortifications that they really aren't building, that they're working all night. Behind that, they're packing up, they're loading wagons. There, in order to keep this silent, they wrap the wheels. That's what you had to do then. You had to wrap the wagon wheels with rags. And they take those country lanes and go over those farmlands. And they go to Princeton, where having outmaneuvered the British, moved around them, they're going to attack a weaker force there and have another victory of the day. Which makes three victories, counting the Essenpink Creek, which doesn't often get a lot of attention, was at worst a draw and at best an American victory given the casualty numbers and and in conjunction with everything else. One of the things I like in uh, Chervinsky's book, she contrasts what Washington did with what the British General Cornwallis does. He has a council of war, much smaller, you know, people from high British aristocratic families, most of them know Cornwallis. These officers are going to address him as my lord. He presents his plan and he expects these officers to carry them out. By the time Cornwallis realizes what was happening, Washington was already in Princeton, surprising a limited force of 450 soldiers to his several thousand and winning another battle. 
And as 1776 turns to 1777, it's clear it's going to be a war. But it's Washington's use of counsel that is one of the factors that makes a decisive difference here. And according to our guest, Lindsay Chervinsky, it's something that Washington brought with him when he entered the presidency. It was his natural inclination to listen and to get expert advice. Chervinsky's book is The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And she joins us on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Today, I am joined by Lindsay Chervinsky, a White House historian, at the White House Historical Association, previously postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. She is the author of The Cabinet. Lindsay, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, This morning, I did a little search of the Constitution, and I got that little bell that rings on my computer when there's an error because I typed in the word cabinet, and I couldn't find it in the text of the Constitution. That is correct. It is not in the Constitution. And um, I'm glad you did the word search to prove it because I've actually done talks with other historians and they don't believe me. And they pull it up on their phones and they're like searching through the Constitution. But yeah, the word is not in the Constitution. The institution was not intended to be created. In fact, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected proposals for an advisory body that would have looked like the cabinet. Yeah, advisory bodies were a thing of like the British government and gosh, now I'm trying to think of that horrible minister, not Lord North, but the American, the American minister, but also Hutchinson and some of the governors in the colonies had executive councils and, and I think Americans really, you know, your average, um, uh, liberty loving Republican American at least would hate something like that. Yeah, they, there were really two different options that they both were fearful of for different reasons. So the first was the British cabinet, like you mentioned, and they really felt like that was where um, most of the corruption and conflict was coming from. And that's really where the bills that they had hated so much leading up to the revolution had originated. And so they blamed that for basically all of the evils that they saw in the British government. On the other side of the equation were the councils in the state governments, and most of those had been created during the revolution in sort of the backlash to monarchical power. And so those councils were actually set up for the legislature to sort of limit executive power. And so the governors had to meet with these councils, they had to sort of follow their advice And all of these counselors were appointed by the legislature. They were paid by the legislature. So they're very much beholden to Mm -hmm. what the legislature wanted. Um, And so both of those sort of presented very different but equally problematic circumstances that the delegates are really trying to avoid. Yeah, one of the things um, I read in the Constitution, you know, it says um, under the president's power, Article 2, so he may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices. That line, to me, says everything of a distance between the president and these officers. It's like, first of all, it's requiring in writing. Um, Mm -hmm. And second of all, um, now it's require, so that's a must. They have to answer if you require. But it also Mm -hmm. just separates – just the language of it separates those executive departments um, 
and reduces the president almost to a to a letter writer and it implies perhaps and i know it's not saying this that you know congress has it's or or congress or the whole american people these people that head up say the treasury of the united states or the war department or the state department you know kind of work for everybody not just for the president yeah that's right so that's a really interesting way to to read the text i think that that phrase um it has a couple of important parts to it. One, which you mentioned, is the the written component. And that was so crucial because it was going to provide evidence and transparency at these highest levels of government. And they were very concerned that the ministers or the advisors or the secretaries would be providing advice behind closed doors. And then it wouldn't be clear who was saying what or, you know, who was really advocating for maybe bad policies. And so then you can't remove the people who are advocating for those bad policies if you don't know what they're saying. The second part that I think is really interesting is that they're only allowed to offer written advice on issues pertaining to their department. So they didn't really want the Secretary of the Treasury giving advice on matters of diplomacy. And they didn't really want the Secretary of War giving advice on matters pertaining to the Treasury. So I think that that's just a really interesting um, sort of part that they put into that clause to ensure that people were giving advice on the things that they had expertise in. And then, of course, the other part, which is so hard for us to envision from a 21st century perspective, is that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention really expected that the Senate would serve as a council of foreign affairs. They weren't just going to either reject or rubber stamp appointments and treaties. They were supposed to provide advice. And at the time, the Senate was much, much smaller. It was only 24 people initially because Rhode Island hadn't yet ratified the Constitution. And these were indirectly elected officials. So while they weren't directly elected, they were at least responsible to the states and therefore responsible to the people. And so if they gave bad advice, they could be removed. And so that was considered to be a much safer way for the president to go about getting support and advice on issues of foreign policy, which were so important for the new nation. Yeah, I mean, I think even today we retain a little bit of distrust in in the cabinet. And I think the way it comes out is, to, if you go back to the Reagan administration, there was a lot of hatred and venom, not not for Reagan supporters, but for a lot of other people, uh, towards James Watt, the EPA chief, interior secretary, I forget now. But um, and there was a lot of suspicion towards, uh, let's say, in the Obama administration, either Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch. And then you get to the Trump administration. And while if somebody's a partisan on one side or the other, of course, the president's going to come up. There seems to be an especial venom for that cabinet person that could be kind of holding all of this power and doing things, and and there's calls for them to get get replaced. So you seem to retain this kind of distrust of somebody it, because these federal departments are so big. You're so right, and I think that that's one of the really unique aspects of the cabinet that it's sort of underexplored is that it almost serves as a safety valve for the administration. And so if the cabinet is working well and is achieving its aims, it kind of blends into the background and people don't really see it. They don't really pay attention to it and they don't really pay attention to the secretaries. But when things go wrong, 
those secretaries tend to become very visible and they're all of a sudden in the news and they're attracting attention. And so in a lot of ways, the secretary's successes, they just lend credence to the president and you don't even really notice them. But their scandals or their flaws, it really undermines administration. And that's one of, I think, the challenges for every president is how do you manage what is bound to be a group of probably very intelligent, experienced, opinionated people who are used to being listened to and, and probably used to getting their own way. It's an almost impossible task. Yeah, it's difficult because the, the origin of the cabinet, at least now, maybe a little vent too, it's not just simply, hey, George W. Bush, just pick people you're friendly with. Or, hey, you know, Barack Obama, just pe pick people you're friendly with. I mean, I wouldn't imagine that Hillary Clinton would have, not that they're not friends, but it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been his team in Chicago, right? Uh, so you appoint Hillary Clinton because, Secretary of State, because she's a, a person that's powerful within the party. You're seeing that in the Trump administration, maybe a little less so because some of the powerful figures were rivals, but you're seeing significant congressmen like Pompeo become so you're not really picking a group of friends. You're picking people who are powerful within the party. And then, but I want to go back. Um, oh, and I and I have to throw in uh, uh, Jermaine to the point you just made about. Uh, I I I do a vice presidential podcast as well, and we had one on Calvin Coolidge. And one of the things when he first takes office as president after Harding dies, he tells the 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 cabinet something we wouldn't really imagine much today. It's like. Keep me as little informed as possible because <laughs> <That's so funny. laughs> it's like after the Teapot Dome scandal with Harding where it, it snatched up his uh, and his interior secretary and others and was still being investigated. He was, you know, the president can't be fired. So anything you do that's bad, you know, I can fire you. But if you keep me out of it, then you'll protect me. You know, it was, it was just, he didn't, paraphrasing, but it's almost exactly what he said. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I want to take this moment to direct your attention to the www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com website. Uh, there's a couple of things there. First of all, you're going to see some back episodes. Um, and, you know, maybe if you're just listening to this program for the first time, you haven't heard. So go there and check that out. If you wish to subscribe and get even more episodes that aren't available to the public, extra episodes, subscribe to the extra podcast, which you can do from the site. We also have a, a factoid there about the top four presidents who were the most popular during their time in office. It may surprise you. There's an illustration there from my friend uh, Charles Ricciardi, who uh, does does some great artwork. So check out www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and go there and check it out.
I like that your book, your book, uh, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of American Institution, it is uh, by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. That's the publisher. And, you know, with a publisher like that, you wouldn't expect it, but it does open with action scenes. So we go to the war, the Revolutionary War, and some of the key battles, um, including the Battle of Monmouth in that. You say that the cabinet was forged in war. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Well, first, thank you so much. Um, I I did really, I, I felt that the story was so important because it hadn't really been told. And I felt that it had the potential to be of interest to a lot of people. And so I wanted it to be accessible and I wanted it to be um, readable by people who don't have PhDs in history. And so those action scenes are critical to making it an interesting narrative. Um, but the reason that the cabinet is forged in war is because there it wasn't written down, as we've discussed. It wasn't created by legislation. There wasn't some other body that Washington just sort of um, restarted again. He had to create it from scratch. And so what he pulled on was his leadership experience. And the most important and most valuable leadership experience, I would argue, that Washington had was in his councils of war during the revolution, when he would gather his officers and aides de camp to discuss battle plans, to discuss the possibility of retreat, to discuss where they were going to go into winter quarters, basically any big moment, usually that was precipitated by a council of war. And these were really valuable for him because it was an opportunity for everyone to share their opinions, to sort of debate and duke it out, which allowed him to stress test each position and see where the weaknesses or the flaws were in each proposal. And then if the secretaries or excuse me, if the officers in the councils of war disagreed, he could then ask for written opinions afterwards and ensure that he had all of the advice. He had all of the information. Um, sometimes these were very boisterous, loud events when big personalities could dominate. And so by asking for written opinions, he ensured that if there was a, a quieter person, he was hearing from them too. And then he could take all of that information and consider it in his own way. And Washington definitely made decisions on the slower side, but then he implemented them with firmness and quickly once he did actually make a decision. So it suited his style of leadership incredibly well, and it worked very well during the revolution. And so that was something that he was sort of eager to bring into the presidency once he decided that the cabinet was necessary, which um, I don't know that I've said this yet, but it didn't actually happen until two and a half years into his administration that the first cabinet meeting actually took place. So I mean, they he, had departments. Their executive departments yes. were established. Yes, that's right. So the departments were established in the summer of 1789. And he was exchanging written opinions with the secretaries. And then by early 1790, he was having one-on-one -on -one consultations because written um, correspondence was just way too slow and inefficient to deal with the many, many, many details of the decisions that they had to make. But it wasn't until two and a half years into the presidency that he actually brought them all together to discuss something um, collectively. And that's what he modeled off of the councils of war. And it, it does get interesting. So his early cabinet is, um, of course, Alexander Hamilton is Treasury Secretary. Um, Thomas Jefferson is Secretary of State. Um, Henry Knox, Secretary of War, if I have that right. And one of the Randolphs, mm -hmm. I think John, is the... Um, Edmund. Edmund, okay. Edmund. Edmund, really powerful guy in Virginia, is the Attorney General. 
that's the key for? Am I missing someone in that early cabinet? No, those were those were the four. Um, now, the attorney general didn't have the Justice Department at that point. It was mm-hmm. that position was really more of a advisor on constitutional questions and other sort of legal issues to the other secretaries and to the president. But those four were the ones that attended the cabinet meetings. They were Washington's closest advisors. And one of the things that I really tried to accomplish with the story is to demonstrate that it wasn't just Hamilton and Jefferson, that Mm -hmm. Knox and Randolph were so important to the cabinet deliberation process and to Washington and his presidency. But, you know, it's funny. It's just like in companies today. Um, I I always find that sales always gets its way. And very often CEOs of companies come from the sales department. The guy with the money (laughs) uh, always seems to be the one that has the sway. And it does seem like in that early cabinet that it's not quite a cabinet of equals, that Hamilton um, has, first of all, so much of the employment And Jefferson gets, you know, a a little bit of a printing budget and maybe an assistant and things like that. But it does seem like Hamilton, and then Hamilton also has, it could be debated how much, but it it certainly has the president's ear. Um, I would say yes and no. So in the first, in the first couple of years, certainly the administration was very focused on trying to set up a firm financial base for the nation. But one of the other big questions was what the United States relationship with Native Americans was going to look like. And that fell under Henry Knox's purview. So he was um, at Washington's you know, private study just as frequently as Hamilton was. Um, and then later on, I think that those issues tended to die down a little bit. And so he was a little bit less um, instrumental in the day-to-day deliberations of mm-hmm. government. Um, but in some ways, that that story that Hamilton had Washington's ear more than anyone else, that is a direct product of Jefferson. And um, when I looked through the cabinet deliberations, it actually struck me that Washington almost went back and forth between siding with Jefferson and siding with Hamilton. And he worked really hard to balance the two of them. Now, Jefferson didn't see it that way. And in some ways, um, his telling of the story is the one that has stayed with us the longest. But um, certainly, of course, money had, you know, the biggest sway. And so Hamilton did have a lot of authority. But I don't think he had as much authority as Jefferson thought he did, and perhaps not as much as sort of history has remembered. Oh, that's a very interesting. Yeah. I mean, Washington was a listener. Mm -hmm. We don't Think of all of our politicians today as a listener. I think some of the recent um, adoration for Andrew Cuomo um, never came out before because I think he is one of those rare politician listeners. Um, I know this from articles and things where you just spend every hour of the morning on the telephone listening to all sorts of state officials and then would come out and be the most informed person. Um, hmm. Reagan, to balance things out of it, <laughs> was a listener, right? Um, mm-hmm. Reagan was not one. You know, he'd go to a party and instead of uh, shaking hands with all the people, would end up talking to the the, the father of the guys who, who, whose house the party was at and not, not talk to anybody else. Um, a, a good listener. Without getting into the kind of Parson Weems worship of Washington, so much of our government seems founded by him. He sort mm-hmm. of like set the precedents and the rules. And um, I just think about a hypothetical where if the 
Conway Cabal had come about and he was no longer the general and then no longer president. We either had like Horatio Gates or John Hancock or Mifflin or somebody else as that first president. You know, how different things might be. Kind of a meandering point, but it, but perhaps you could talk about like how much of the cabinet is is kind of forged by Washington and then, you know, what might have changed if he wasn't there. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, so he certainly was, you know, he was very real. He was very human. He was very flawed, um, can absolutely talk about those things and happy to do so. Um, but I think that he doesn't actually always receive enough credit for the things that he elected not to do. And restraint is a really hard quality to measure and to quantify. It's not like winning a civil war or winning World War II. And so much of his precedent was restraint, was sort of quiet action, establishing a day-to-day practice, like you said. I mean, it's just really the contours. I highly encourage everyone to actually look at what's written in the Constitution because, especially in Article 2, there just isn't that much there. And so he had to figure out what he was supposed to do every day and how he was supposed to interact with all of these people. And that was just such an enormous undertaking. And it's hard to envision what would have happened had that not been the case, because he was so instrumental in making sure the Constitution happened. Uh, He was the president of the Constitutional Convention, and his presence there lended it so much credibility. Uh, His sending it to Congress and then the states lended it this huge, um, lended this huge sort of air of his approval And then, you know, he sort of worked behind the scenes to try and manipulate votes and get people to to ratify it. And then, of course, him being president gave the federal government legitimacy and substance in a way. And it allowed people because the flag wasn't, you know, the sort of touchstone that we think of it today and it wasn't a national symbol. And most people felt very strongly about their local and state connections, but they had no affiliation for a national government. The only thing they really knew was Washington. And so he gave them an early sense of nationalism. And I don't I, I, am, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that no one else could have filled that role at that moment. So it's almost impossible to imagine, you know, had he been tarnished during the war in some way, I don't know who would have filled that role. And I don't think it I don't think it would have worked. Yeah, it's possible that the state governments would have would have just retained much more power and you wouldn't have had yeah. a strong confederation without him is it given how how much he pushed for it unless somebody else somebody else emerged as a hero but that gets into hypothetical upon hypothetical yeah i think it, it's more likely that the states would have sort of broken up into sections not unlike sort of what we're seeing today um to you know respond to the virus but um, I think it's much more likely they would have broken up into a southern block, a sort of mid-block, a western block, and then a northern block. We assume today, and it's certainly a feature of the current president, given that he his background and he's associated with firing people, uh, he's famous for it, both in his business and on the TV show previously. So Americans aren't surprised, you know, when he just fires a, this department head or that cabinet officer. But this this whole idea of presidents firing um, a member of the executive department, uh, perhaps you could speak to that because it didn't it doesn't strike me as something that was necessarily there from the beginning. Yeah, it's a great question, um, and it, I think it highlights actually one of the things that is so important for 
Americans to know about their government, which is that so much of the structure of the federal government, the presidency especially, is built on custom. And it's not actually built into law. And so it's about practice and what we're used to. So um, when the departments were created in the summer of 1789, the there was very intense, fiery debate about whether or not the president could remove the secretaries with um, on his own, or did he need congressional approval? And ultimately, they decided that if the president needed congressional approval, then he wouldn't be able to f- completely oversee those departments. They would be half congressional departments and half executive. So that was the first sort of legal piece. Um, now, Washington did have several secretaries resign during his uh, presidency, whether it be to retire or in the case of Edmund Randolph, some of the other secretaries accused him of treason. I, I think very much that he that was not the case, but he resigned because he felt that he had lost Washington's trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually wasn't until John Adams, towards the end of his presidency, that he actually fired a secretary for the first time, and that was Timothy Pickering. And he had offered Pickering the opportunity to resign, sort of which was the gentleman's out. And Pickering said no, basically calling Adams bluff, thinking that he wouldn't enforce it. And Adams did enforce it, which was a very important legal moment because when he did fire Pickering and there was no congressional pushback, that basically solidified that custom into presidential practice. Um, but I think that your your question gets at another sort of part of presidential precedent, which I think is really important, which is that in addition to, you know, his two terms in office and and the appointments and all of that, there are several cabinet practices that Washington established that most presidents have really tried to follow. The first is that the cabinet is an amazing opportunity to put together a coalition that brings together the country the way you want it to come together. So Washington was very attentive to make sure that the secretaries came from different regions. They represented different economic and factional interests. They had different backgrounds and different expertise. And so while, you know, the the concept of citizenship has expanded to include people of color and women um, in the 21st century, at the time, it basically, the cabinet represented all forms of what a citizen could be. And that idea has generally held to be very powerful, and the definition of diversity has expanded. Obama had the most diverse cabinet in history. The second part of that is um, scandal. And generally, presidents try and avoid scandal in their cabinet, which sounds like common sense, and it is in some ways. But um, any form of scandal really undermines their ability to get things done. It undermines their ability to liaise with Congress to serve as a public representation of the nation. And so if there is a tiny hint of scandal, like with the Edmund Randolph case, Washington basically ended a multi-decade friendship on the possibility that there was going to be a scandal. And he was so careful to try and remove it from his presidency, which seemed very cold and very harsh, but he was more concerned about the reputation of the country and the federal government and his administration than he was that relationship. The Randolph thing, um, was that involving the French? Yes. So what happened in that case was the French minister sent a number of letters back to the French government. And while they were on their way, the ship was captured by a British ship. And those letters were handed to the British minister who handed them to Timothy Pickering and Oliver Wolcott Jr., who were the 
Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Treasury, respectively. And these letters were in French, and they translated them in a very poor way. And basically, the translation that they came up with was that Randolph had offered to sway events in the federal government for a bribe. Now, what actually the letter said was that Randolph said to the French minister, this was the previous year in 1794 when the Whiskey Rebellion was taking place, for a small amount of money, the French could influence the outcome of events. And he was referring to the rebels on the western border of Pennsylvania. If France invested in those rebels, they could really change the outcome of the rebellion. But Washington didn't really speak French, and so he relied on Pickering and Wolcott's translation, which, again, I think was a faulty one, and assumed that this was basically Randolph requesting a bribe. Ah, that's 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 very interesting. We see, like, over time, the cabinet has different powers. It seems like, you know, in Lincoln's time, of course, he gets the famous team of rivals, but the cabinet assumes that they're very powerful. And they were, I mean, if you look at... Um, Tyler or Buchanan, you know, these cabinets were really powerful and sort of saw the president as as the little person in the bunch that shared the meetings or something like that. And Lincoln famously says, you know, when he makes a decision and everyone else is opposed that the eyes have it um, and uh, he goes the way he wants to. But mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could talk a bit about I, I know it's a little outside the scope of the book, but a little bit over the about the um, cabinet and its power or lack of power over time, and if it's something that Washington, if the cabinet today is something that Washington would be. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Familiar with or surprised by? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, obviously the cabinet has expanded a great deal. It has institutionalized. The National Security Council has taken over a lot of the responsibilities that we would typically associate with the early cabinet. But there are a couple of things that do sort of remain the same. And the first is that the secretaries are, at first and foremost, they are bureaucrats, and they oversee the matters pertaining to their department. And that still holds true. And so generally, when they meet one-on-one -on -one with the president, they're reporting back on what has happened in their department and, you know, sort of any issues that have come up in that way. And that was true in 1781 and is true today. The second thing is that the cabinet relationships with the president are very malleable and they're very flexible, which means that they change with each administration. And a couple of the examples that you pointed out are great ones because it shows that the president can really manage and sort of, you know, have a strong grasp on the cabinet or can really be managed by the cabinet. So 
with every new president and every new administration, there is the possibility for sort of a new dynamic and a new way that the cabinet will break down. And that really gets at the heart of what Washington's legacy actually is, or at least my argument in the cabinet, um, is that Washington determined who his closest advisors were going to be. And sometimes they were in the cabinet and sometimes they weren't. And that was a legacy that he left, that the secretaries did not have a right to be a part of the decision-making process. That was the president alone. And that the president could decide who he was going to consult for each particular issue. And we still see that today. So, you know, in the Kennedy administration, for example, Kennedy had his official cabinet and he had his kitchen cabinet and he was very close to some secretaries, especially his brother, which is a little bit more of a a blended of sort of a personal and professional um, circle in one. Some people are really close with a couple of advisors outside of the administration. Eisenhower had a particularly effective cabinet. He got along really well with his secretaries. Um, Jackson had sort of a calamitous cabinet experience, at least early on. And today we see that that is true as well, that the president can consult with cabinet members or he can consult with family members or other people that he chooses to listen to at any given moment. And so that legacy is one that I think we haven't really fully grappled with because those relationships take place really outside any sort of public or congressional oversight. Other than uh, points that we discussed, is there anything that you think is worthwhile for um, listeners to know about the Washington and the cabinet or the cabinet in general? Yeah, I would say that if you're, you know, if you're interested in the origins of the government and you're interested in the origins of the country, the cabinet is central to every major moment in the first couple of decades, especially, and is right there as the president is negotiating diplomatic issues, domestic issues, constitutional questions. And you can't really understand how these branches of government developed and evolved in the way that they did without understanding the role of the cabinet. My goal with the story was really to share how those things did evolve and very organically in response to domestic pressures and, you know, international wars and Hopefully it is a very exciting story and not not like one you would necessarily find in your old history textbook. Well, I've been talking with Lindsay Trevinsky, author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Highly recommended. Lindsay, thanks for uh, coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Well, we want to thank our guest, Lindsay Trevinsky, and her book is The Cabinet. We were only able to talk about a very few things, and this is a you know, this is a 403-page book, so there's a lot to learn. One of the things she's going to get to even more is a little bit into the contrast between Adams and Jefferson and Washington and how they handled their cabinets. Website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Um, go there for some older episodes. Give us any feedback. 
If you like Twitter, we're at at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Follow us, and um, thanks for listening. Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.